goal setting theory is one of the kind of most supported theories in psychology in general. This is basically the idea that if you set goals um, that are you know, pretty specific, that have some sort of time orientation, um, that are again, like challenging yet not overwhelming, that like there's all these beneficial outcomes from, from setting those goals. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. All right, we got a great pleasure today. I want to welcome Dr. Jared Weintraub to the FRC radio podcast. Jared, it's, it's great to have you here. Long time overdue. Thank you so much, Brent. It's absolutely my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here today. Right on. So Jared is a passionate about helping individuals, teams, and organizations create, grow, and maintain purpose-driven, positive, and productive cultures. Jared's got quite a background and experience in this space as a researcher and, and certainly as a consultant and coach. So Jared's worked with startups, Fortune 500 companies and organizations, really across a, a wide variety of, of industries, uh, providing internal and external consulting and coaching uh, to CEOs, startups, uh, mar managing marketing and sales teams and so forth. Uh, Jared is also an adjunct professor, maybe I should say Dr. Weintraub here, is an adjunct professor who has taught undergraduate and graduate psychology courses. And he, he recently completed his PhD in applied organizational psychology from Hofstra University, where, which has really brought him here in many ways, he researched flow theory, how, when, and why individuals, teams, and organizations can get into the zone. So Jared, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Before we really dive in, I'm curious, what started you off on this path? Was there a moment in your life that flow stood out as a, a topic you wanted to research and really dive into? Yeah, yeah. So flow has really been part of my life forever. And I didn't really have a label for, you know, what flow was until really I was doing my master's degree. Um, but I started off as a musician. I really only wanted to be a musician and perform and play music for people my whole life up until, you know, after I graduated college. And so, um, you know, a lot of the feedback that I would get as a performer was how kind of in the moment I was and how I was super, you know, focused and in the zone when I performed. And that's really, uh, you know, a lot of what people loved about uh, my performances and what I loved about performing, um, really that feeling of being in flow. Um, and so really that drove me for a long time without knowing, you know, what flow was. And then at a certain point after, you know, several years of pursuing a career in music, I kind of stopped feeling flow while performing. 
And that, um, you know, was the trigger for me to say, I need to do something different. Like I, I stopped feeling flow. I was performing, you know, at, at 10 p.m., 11 p.m. on Monday nights for free in these tiny clubs in New York City. And I felt like, you know, if I'm not feeling it, then why would other people want to, you know, see me perform or hear me perform? And at that point, I, I did a major pivot. I started working for startup companies and I actually felt flow, not knowing what it was at that time in those moments too, you know, in, in startup companies, you have, um, you know, it's challenging, um, yet you have to kind of meet those challenges in, in your role. Um, and so you're doing tons of exciting different things and um, talking to a lot of different people and building this, um, this brand or building these products um, at a fast pace. And that you know, those conditions really help to facilitate the feeling of flow. Um, and so during my master's, which I, which I was doing in industrial organizational psychology to support my work within startups, I read an article um, about flow, about um, the differences between mindfulness flow and mind wandering. And I remember it distinctly, it was this um, article by Scott Dust, who's an incredible researcher who's now actually a, uh, um, a close mentor of mine who I've published a couple of articles with. And, you know, he describes flow, what it is. And he also talked about how flow is really understudied in the workplace in particular. And again, with this history that I had around flow with performing and then in my workplace, I felt like, you know, if I can help people to get into flow in the workplace um, and more broadly as well, and if I can, you know, learn to do the research to help understand what flow is, what, you know, can help people to get into flow at work and kind of combine that research with practice, then that seemed like a really great path for me that I became really passionate about um, since that time. So that's really what led me to, you know, where I am now. Right on. And I'm excited to jump into those articles. I think, you know, the listeners today are going to learn a lot about the intersection of mindfulness training and finding flow and uh, additional attentional systems, uh, really going into understanding how to nudge themselves into flow in the workplace and really how to master this kind of dynamic between doing and being and overcoming multitasking. So we're going to get into a lot of that, Jared. I'm really stoked to jump in, but let's just go back a little bit if you can. Tell me what it was like when you're performing in flow in those clubs as a musician versus when you felt like you weren't in flow. And yeah, what what's your instrument? Uh, really, yeah, take us back there if we could. Yeah, so I sing and play guitar, uh, mostly mostly acoustic guitar. I'm you know, a singer-songwriter, so I was writing my own stuff and performing it and also did a bunch of covers as well. And yeah, the only way that I could really think to describe it is when I would perform in flow and and I distinctly remember kind of teaching myself how to do that um, when I was really young because I could feel the difference of like performances when I was in flow and then the performances when I was not in flow and when you're in flow while performing it just feels smooth is like the uh, the way that I could best describe it it just feels effortless you just do it, it feels great. You can almost, you can like improvise a little bit more without feeling kind of silly about doing it. Um, mm. It feels just like really rewarding and um, just 
you're in your happy place, right? So a lot of times you finish the performance and it's like, wow, that's that's over, right? And you 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 feel this like like rush of energy during it, but then at the end you just kind of like feel it feel yourself come down almost and like wow like what what was that kind of a thing mm-hmm. uh, and when you're not in flow and performing often you'll second guess yourself a little bit more it feels there's like a lot more friction or tension during that um during that performance where you have to put a lot more effort in and it just feels off in some way um mm-hmm. and so that's what ended up happening it felt off more often than i felt on um, and it, it stopped being fun really. So, you know, when you're in flow, it just feels great and so much fun. So, um, that's how I would describe the difference. Yeah, yeah. Been, it sounds like, you know, quite a long time since you've gone through your master's and, and your PhD program now. So are you, you, you back playing in clubs when you get a chance and finding more flow again or? Yeah. You know, it's funny is, um, when I, when I, uh, pivoted and started working in the startups and then was doing my master's when I was living in, uh, Washington, DC, I started to do open mics uh, in DC and immediately felt flow again. Once, once I kind of stopped having flow as my, I mean, sorry, having um, performing or being a musician as like my, my job, I started to feel it again in, in those kind of fun times when I would do it just as a, I think to blow off steam outside of school um, and I started to perform a little bit more. It's been a couple of years just because of, of COVID and all of that since I've, since I've performed. But once things calm down, I definitely plan to start doing it again as a side, as a side hobby um, and, and start playing a lot more. Right on, right on. Well, let's jump in into some of your research now. So one of your large chapters you, you published was on mindfulness workplace, you know, workplace mindfulness theory and research. And mm-hmm. uh, Incredible article. You went into a lot of uh, understandably the benefits of mindfulness, but I thought maybe just as a yeah, as a novel way to look at this study, could we start off with some of the you know maybe detrimental mindfulness outcomes that you that you found out? And I thought maybe an interesting way to start us off here would be to describe kind of the difference between uh, being and doing. You mentioned uh, Liddy and Good's theory of being while doing, and mm-hmm. maybe. That's, break that down for us and then maybe start to share some of the yeah, detrimental outcomes of mindfulness perhaps in the workplace. Sure. Yeah. So I guess first we can talk a little bit about like what the differences are between these different cognitive states, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it was um, Dane who who kind of creates this um, this structure of like the differences between cognitive states. So there's like two different dimensions. Uh, one dimension is sort of the um, the time orientation. So there's like present moment focus, past focus, or future focus, right? Uh, and then the other is the uh, attentional breath, okay? So this is like you either have very wide attentional breath and you're thinking about or focused on a whole bunch of different things at once or just kind of taking in the whole environment or you have a very narrow attentional breath, which is like you're focused on one thing, you're being very detail oriented and you're kind of honed in into that one thing. And so uh, mindfulness and flow are very, um, they, they overlap in ways as far as attentional, uh, as far as um, the present moment focus. So mindfulness and flow, you're both focused, are both focused on the here and the now. 
Um, but where they differ is that when you're being mindful, you have a much wider attentional breath. You're kind of letting um, yourself feel all of the feels, right? Thinking all of the things and kind of letting go, but still being in the moment, right? Um, what flow is like a very narrow attentional breath where you're sort of focused on the task at hand, you have clear goals and you're, you know, honed in to the zone, really focused on that thing that you're doing. And that's kind of like the big difference. And then we have other um, like um, attentional states such as like mind wandering, rumination and fantasizing. And these ideas are really, uh, so mind wandering is this kind of broad attentional breath where you're not really focused on the right now. You're just sort of focused on a whole bunch of things. Your mind is kind of wandering all over the place, but you're not focused on now. You might be focused on the future or the past when your mind is wandering. Then rumination is really, um, you're really focused on one thing. Like you're thinking about what you did, um, you know, the other day that was really embarrassing or something that uh, it could be, a good thing too, right? Thinking about a, a nice memory that you have that happened in the past, but then fantasizing is like a future oriented state. So you're thinking about, oh, you know, like, I hope that this happens in the future, this specific thing, or I hope that this thing doesn't happen in the future. And you're like worrying about future states. And so all of these cognitive states have their purpose. There's like good and bad, you know, ups and downs about each of them. And so one of the things that I've thought about a lot over the last few years is how do we recognize these different states? How do we, you know, learn how to use each of them to our advantage while trying to um, sort of mitigate the disadvantages of each of them? And so for mindfulness, right, we have this kind of broad attentional state that helps us to understand what we're feeling in the moment, right, to think about our environment, to hear people when they're speaking to you and really um, try to understand their points of view, right? So there's some of that like attentional, um, that emotional intelligence that happens with mindfulness. So those are kind of the good things about mindfulness, right? It helps us to relax. It helps us to understand ourselves and others. But um, when you're kind of focused on a whole bunch of different things at once, it's hard to hone in on one thing and to like get things done. And so mindfulness is often a more, um, this is the, the, um, the uh, Liddy and I forget the good, Liddy, yeah. Liddy and good, right? Yeah. 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 So this is the Liddy and good being while doing, right? And so mindfulness is more of a, of a being state where you're sort of being conscious of things that are happening around you and feeling the feels like I was saying, but it's hard to do the doing part of it because you have to focus on one thing, you have to like take action and you know have some sort of goals. And, and mindfulness is often um, not a goal-oriented state. And in, in fact, um, much of the time you want to avoid specific goals while you're being mindful because you wanna just see, you know, what are the things that come across your mind um, and, and understand that part of your subconscious, I guess, and, and let it go and, and just be. All right. Well said, Jared. And I know there's also a lot of benefits of mindfulness to finding flow. So let's, we'll keep diving into that. Um, yeah. One of the 
descriptions that I, I really enjoyed. And I think you may have come across this in your research too. Uh, this differentiating between mindfulness and flow is that in mindfulness, it's as if we're sitting on the edge of the river, watching the stream of consciousness flow. Whereas in flow state, perhaps we're kind of diving into that river, kind of getting swept mm -hmm. away, engaged and gross. I'm not sure if that's a metaphor analogy you've used too, or? Yeah, I, I personally haven't used that one, but I like it a lot because flow is a much more doing state. Again, like the um, kind of the ups of the upsides of flow or sometimes the downsides of, of mindfulness and vice versa. I kind of have, have um, thought about them as almost like a yin, yin and yang type of thing, right? And so with flow, you are really focused on that thing that you're doing. It's a much more doing state where you are executing on whatever the thing is that you thought that you wanted to be doing. Um, but you're also with flow, you're blocking out distractions, right? Which is often a very good thing when you're trying to focus on a singular task or whatever the task is at hand. But, you know, we're thinking about a workplace example. If you're a manager and you're in flow all day, every day, which, you know, we at FRC, we know that's not you know, possible or, or, you know, not something that we actually even want to really strive for. Um, but if you're in flow, a lot of the time as a manager, you're focused on like your individual tasks, right? And you're blocking out distractions. But as a manager, your job is often to pass information on to other people or to help other people to, you know, um, deal with their issues. And so, um, you know, people might be emailing you. Sometimes people are knocking on your door or coming up to your desk and you just basically ignore them because you're blocking out distractions and distractions themselves can be a wide range of things, right? So um, what we kind of label as distractions in our mind could actually be detrimental to getting your, your job done as well or to um, helping others if you, uh, you know, if you don't pay attention to that. Yeah, well said. One of the, well, I want to go through a few of the other interesting findings. One was that you mentioned how mindfulness could be used to manipulate unhappy employees into accepting their current situation and kind of becoming pacified in their place in the organization. Seems mm -hmm. like, yeah, the interesting nuance there to describe, you know, how mindfulness might have that detriment, but flow could maybe be an opposite or more ad adaptive mental state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So mindfulness can often be used as a band-aid for, you know, a, a deeper symptom that organizations have, right? So when we teach ourselves to be mindful, we sort of like let, you know, again, like help ourselves to, to be less stressed out, right? To control our emotions a little bit better, to understand how we're feeling. But if the work situation that you're in is abusive or, you know, really not making you happy because of the type of work that you're doing or because of the amount of stress that that work itself causes you. And you're kind of using mindfulness as a crutch to um, get over those things, then, you know, that's not what we want to encourage in the workplace. You want to try to get at the, you know, the real um, underlying issues there. Uh, and so, you know, mindfulness can be used to, to kind of get people to forget, oh yeah, like actually these are deeper issues here, but just go meditate, relax and get over it and like keep doing your work kind of a thing. Yeah, you also mentioned how mindfulness kind of leads to this <clears throat> decoupling of the self from experiences mm -hmm. and emotions. And, you know, mm -hmm. 
can build on that and uh, maybe even tie it to the role of the self. I know you, you, some of your research on using nudges and goals is about, you know, connecting back to self-determination. So yeah, anything more you can say about the kind of the detrimental effects of decoupling the self from maybe the workplace and, and yeah, how else to work with the self in that context? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, some mindful practices are about stepping outside of yourself and often like observing, um, observing your thoughts, right, and kind of like, uh, yeah, like decoupling yourself from like being in that moment as you, if that makes sense. And instead, you step out and you think like, um, you know, why am I feeling these things, right? And like try, and more of like an analytical, again, this like being state. And so um, if your work or the things that you're doing require you to kind of be more connected to yourself in the moment rather than like analyzing yourself in that moment, then it might not be the, the best state for you to be in at that, at that time. Um, I, again, the, the thing is that there's like a time and place for all of these things and that the default mode, let's say, is that we kind of go in and out of these different states naturally throughout the day. Um, and so you could find yourself being in a mindful state at a time where like flow would actually be more beneficial or vice versa. And the idea is that, um, you know, if we can understand these different states sort of through research, but also as individuals, um, we might be able to recognize, okay, like I'm about to be on this phone call where I need to be totally connected in the moment and like use my emotions in the moment rather than analyze the emotions in the moment. Um, then you can like hone in on those ideas and those skills at that time, rather than just kind of like letting it happen and seeing, you know, where things go in the moment. Could you describe, you mentioned, you know, if we were to jump right into a workplace setting, could you mm -hmm. walk us through maybe how you help, you know, those that you consult identify where is the opportune time for mindfulness or flow or mind wandering or fantasies or, and, and how do you kind of coach people to, you know, maybe be intentional about which mindset they're going to enter these different contexts? In? Yeah. Sure. So obviously there's a lot of variation depending on the individual situation, right? And so that's like a big part of the one-on-one the -on -one coaching is very much about first understanding like what people do, you know, and, and how much each of these different things are important to the, the different tasks that they might be doing. But in general, when we're talking about sort of individualized tasks, right? Flow is really, um, is really key. So sitting down, writing a report, right? Um, that's a time when you wanna be able to focus on like one task, do that report, get it done, get it done right. Um, and, you know, being in flow helps you to kind of get the time to go by a little bit faster. Um, and so in those moments, we, we try to say like, you know, do what you can to block out distractions, right? Block your time in certain ways so that, um, you know, you're not going to be checking your email you're not going to be doing these other things so that you're, you know, letting people know not to bother you, those kinds of things, right? But then um, in, in more like group settings or in sort of um, 
brainstorming sessions, right? Mindfulness might be a little bit more important or more useful, right? So we think about being in a meeting with people um, rather than blocking out distractions and, and really just focusing on your point of view and getting that across and sort of talking over people and um, not considering sort of alternative views. Um, you know, we encourage people to be a little bit more mindful when people are talking, really like listen and be rather than do in those moments, hear what they're saying, um, try to kind of feel your initial reactions to their words and, and understand why you might be feeling those things. And that's a better kind of mindful moment. Um, and again, like these states like fluctuate pretty quickly between each other because um, you could switch it off right away and say, okay, I hear what you're, I hear what you're saying and then get into flow with your idea and, and like putting that forward. Um, and it's this kind of interplay between these states. Um, I also think that, um, you know, mind wandering, fantasizing, ruminating, these things kind of have um, a bad rap, right? Because they're often associated with um, some negative outcomes like anxiety, depression, things like that. But in reality, um, they can be just like a break from the day. Like if you're having a hard day and you think about, you know, some exciting things that you have coming up in the future, or you just kind of like are reflecting on a nice thing that happened in the past, like that can be the, um, like the refresh that you need in that moment to then like refocus and get back in the, um, you know, in the, the flow of things during the day. Um, and then even like in a meeting, right? There's tons of meetings that happen that are totally um, unnecessary, wastes of time, right? And so if you're in a meeting and you know like this meeting is kind of pointless, I like don't actually really need to even be here, right? You're not even gonna be talking during this meeting. And you're just thinking about, okay, after this meeting, like I need to do this, this, and this task, right? You're sort of organizing your mind and planning for the rest of the day. Once that meeting is over, if you actually execute on those things and get into flow and do that, then that kind of fantasizing, right, for just the, the technical label of it, is actually really useful in that moment. So, um, you know, this is just an example of, again, like there's ups and downs of each of these things. Yeah. Do you find that individuals, uh, I'm sure it's quite individual, or to, to each person have a preference between being mindful flow in flow you know fantasizing or ruminating and is that kind of part of your process of coaching helping them kind of understand their default mode as you as you mentioned and kind of developing skill sets for each one of those unique to their kind of personality or yeah yeah i think that's that is the case is kind of like understanding individuals baselines and seeing you know are they on the right path are there different, you know, different states that they don't experience as often as others. Um, and, you know, I think initially people always just assume flow is like the best, most desirable thing. And in a lot of ways, I think it, it is, right? It can be, um, but often, you know, sometimes um, people are in flow um, almost too often and they need to, to learn to like, take that break and kind of reset their, their mindset to make sure that the things that they're doing are actually most beneficial to them and to 
um, you know, do that recovery that we talk about at, at FRC too, um, yeah. to make sure that, you know, you're really setting yourself up for the, you know, to be as successful or the best self that you can be. Well said. So let's jump now into the benefits of mindfulness for finding flow. So you you, you mentioned a number of interesting studies, one by uh, Hamilton and I think it's Shute, uh, that demonstrated mindfulness intervention uh, given to cyclists, reduce anxiety, facilitated flow. You mentioned a study by Butzer on how yoga increased uh, flow in musicians. So I'm curious if you got a yoga mm -hmm. practice going on here for yourself. <laughs> And then uh, one other one that I thought was just interesting uh, by Jackson, um, who, you know, referenced how the inhibition of thinking of the thinking mind and in mindfulness can facilitate that kind of loss of self-consciousness, which helps with that absorption we, we find in flow. So, yeah, curious to maybe just hear your general take on how mindfulness in, influences or promotes flow and feel free to jump on any of those studies or others. Yeah, yeah. So this is an area that I'm very interested in, obviously, how these states interact with each other. There isn't too much research on it. And actually, the research that I'm currently doing is really focused on, on this as well, as well as my, my dissertation was on this idea. And so um, I think that mindfulness can really help facilitate flow because it's actually there, there are like exercises that you can do in the moment to be, be mindful and to build some of the skills that are required for flow. And so flow, to get into flow, you need to have, you know, the challenge skill balance. So this is, you know, as I'm sure, you know, many of the listeners that are, are hearing us today are familiar with, but the idea here is that to be in flow, you have to have a high degree of challenge. So you're sort of pushing yourself to the edge of your abilities but you also need to have the skills to meet that challenge. Otherwise, if you have too much challenge and too little skill, then you feel anxiety. If you have too much skill and too little challenge, then you, you know, feel boredom. Uh, and so what mine, but I guess something to kind of point out about that challenge skill balance is that it's often perception, right? Challenge and skill are both um, sometimes quantifiable but are often subjective, right? So something that you think is really challenging might not be as challenging as you think it is if you, you know, have, you know, understand it a little bit more, if you take a little time to take a step back and sort of um, analyze the situation a little bit more, um, or if you, you know, you can build your skill up a little bit more. Maybe you're self-conscious about your level of skill and you don't believe that actually you have the skill that you do. And so um, with mindfulness, it helps us to reduce anxiety and reduce stress. And so you can help, it can help you to kind of reframe that challenge to be a little bit less challenging or to feel a little bit less stressful for you. And that helps to kind of get that challenge skill balance, that ratio, you know, a little bit in check in a more like you know a little bit more balance for you so that you can hit that um that flow right that you can get into flow um the other thing is that flow requires attentional control right the ability to refocus um you know you get distracted on something and you need to bring your attention back to the present moment and again going back to the similarities between mindfulness and flow there is that present moment 
state, right? They're both focused on the here and the now. And in mindfulness practice, in meditation, a lot of it is often about, you know, bringing your mind back from wandering to the right now. So if you're focusing on your breath or you're doing some sort of, you know, counting, um, you know, it's it, you part of a mindful practice is to say is to is to recognize, hey, I've stopped focusing on my breathing. Oh, I stopped counting or I stopped doing my mantra, whatever it is that, you know, your practices, that mindful practice helps you to recognize that and then bring yourself back to that moment and do that exercise. And so that's sort of a muscle that you build, that ability to A, recognize that you've come off task and B, to refocus yourself. And that ability to refocus helps you to get into flow. So that's why I think mindfulness um, you know, helps to foster flow in that way because it's that same kind of um, skill to stay in the present moment and focus on the here and the now that, that drives flow as well. Right on. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you mentioned in your the study also you know, specific benefits, you know, to attention, cognition, really understanding kind of how mindfulness can increase cognitive flexibility, uh, really its relationship to to emotions. So I'm wondering, you know, just mm-hmm. generally speaking, is there any other kind of massive benefits from mindfulness that you uh, really just love to speak about? One I'll just share that I thought was really interesting. You mentioned how meditators' brains um, were esti- estimated to be seven and a half years younger than those mm-hmm. in control studies. So yeah, I'm just curious. I thought that was fascinating. Any other general benefits of mindfulness you uh, yeah, you love to, to mention? I mean, I, I really think that the, the two core ones are what we've talked about, right? This this ability to focus. And I think that the, the stress reduction is, is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mindfulness off, also helps with just being more comfortable with yourself, right? Understanding yourself a little bit more, uh, you know, recognizing, again, going back to like this emotional intelligence thing, uh, understanding how you feel in the moment, which also helps you to think about how others feel and kind of stepping into, uh, we were talking about that, like decoupling, right? Being able to take yourself out of um, your own self, right? And thinking about others. Um, I think that's really important as well, that, that kind of empathy, right? Um, but I, I, I think that uh, the ability to control your own emotions, right? To, 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 to reduce your stress in the moment at, at will, right? To take that step back and focus on your breathing and, and relax a little bit is so important for so many different reasons. And it's so simple, right? It's just such an easy, simple thing to do. Um, easy in that, like you're just focusing on your your breathing, but it's it's actually something that, unless you are um, intentional about it, it can be challenging to to do that in a way that actually helps you relax, unless you like take the time to to work on that skill. So, um, I, I just really love the simplicity of it. Yeah, you know, I think we're obviously generally speaking here around the importance of self-regulation or self-control and how you kind mm-hmm. of mentioned awareness is part of that, uh, emotion regulation, and then also kind of attentional control. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just before we shift to your other studies, we hear so much, right, about the benefits of mindfulness. It's almost like it's been talked about so much. I feel like sometimes it loses some of its 
yeah, the novelty we get when we hear about it or get introduced to a new mindful practice. Is there anything you've, you've done to make mindfulness, uh, yeah, I don't know if attractive is the right word, just something that people are willing to really give a shot and, and not kind of push off? Because again, it's just so spoken about. I feel like there's almost aversion to it to some degree these days. Yeah, I think a lot of it, and we talk about this in the chapter a little bit, is that the association between like mindfulness and spirituality, um, which there is, you know, a strong association. There's a lot of, you know, if you look at like most religions or, um, you know, spiritual practices, there is a mindfulness aspect. There is something to do with with mindfulness in, in most of them, and the, at least the ones that I know about. But the reality is that mindfulness does not have to be a spiritual endeavor. It can be a skill that is, you know, completely um, outside of that idea. That's outside of like the spirituality. And it's actually just um, an exercise like walking or running or, or weightlifting that has a lot of like physical, um, you know, benefits that, that um, people might be um, you know, might not think about because of the spirituality that's associated with it. And so I try to, um, especially in like the corporate worker in, in the workplace, um, you know, it's, it's actually important to, to stay away from that in a lot of, um, contexts because you don't want to bring religion into the workplace because of just being inclusive and not, um, kind of keeping church and state separate, let's say, right. Um, and so I think showing people what the benefits are, I mean, thinking about that, that study that you mentioned, um, where people's brains literally were seven years, you looked seven years younger, right, in the, in the mindfulness group, uh, compared to the control group, that studies like that just show like the physical benefits that are, um, you know, outside of the spiritual um, state. So I try to focus on those things, keep it, you know, keep it really about um, those kinds of benefits. And then if people bring it into the spiritual realm, which I, you know, I totally support as well, um, then that, then that's great too. Right on. I appreciate that, Jared. So let's jump into one of your, your other studies. So nudging flow through smart goal setting to decrease stress, increase engagement, and increase uh, performance at work. Tell us a little bit about this research. What is nudging and uh, yeah, how can we increase goal setting and, and performance through it? Yeah, yeah. So this study was really the culmination of like all of my lives into one thing, which is really exciting. Um, so obviously we've talked about my passion for flow and um, you know, how flow has all these great benefits, um, especially in the workplace, we, we can think about, you know, flow reducing stress and improving engagement and performance, which are all like super important things in the workplace right now. Um, and, you know, in my startup work, I had um, worked for, or for education technology companies that helped people to develop skills that helped them in the workplace. And so when I started to do flow research, I really wanted to look into interventions and interventions in the workplace have been very understudied because they're it's very difficult to, to do studies where um, you're running experiments and where organizations allow you to kind of run 
um, experiments on their employees. Uh, and so I wanted to try to test these out because there really weren't any interventions that had been like empirically studied at work. Um, and so what I was kind of looking at different options for different types of interventions, one that was sort of a low hanging fruit that had some uh, empirical support in the past was for goal setting. And so goal setting theory is one of the kind of most supported theories in psychology in general. This is basically the idea that if you set goals um, that are you know, pretty specific, that have some sort of time orientation, um, that are again, like challenging yet not overwhelming, that like there's all these beneficial outcomes from, from setting those goals. At the same time, clear goals are one of the prerequisites of getting into flow. So I felt like, okay, here's a place where theory and practice can like really come together. Um, what if we encourage people to set goals and we use the, the SMART goal framework, which also has a you know, good amount of support in, in the literature to try to get people to get into flow and also show that flow leads to these positive outcomes at work because flow is just understudied in the workplace in general. Uh, and so we said, okay, how can we actually get people to do this? How can we encourage them to set goals? And that's where the idea of nudges came in. So nudges are um, a tool essentially that um, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote a book about in 2008. Um, Thaler ended up getting a Nobel Prize in economics for this idea. And the idea is basically that nudges help people to make the best choice for themselves um, without making them mandatory. Um, and so nudges basically have three theoretical underpinnings of them. So they have to be really easy to act on or actually a default thing that you don't have to do anything to act upon. So um, one uh, example of what's called like a default, um, a default mode nudge. Uh, is having people contribute to their 401ks by default. So when you join a company, instead of having you opt in to uh, contribute to those 401ks, it automatically happens. You can decide you don't want to do that and you certainly have the option to change the way that it happens. But by default, um, you know, you start contributing and they found that like when you do this type of nudge that the amount of people who end up contributing to 401ks goes up by like a crazy amount. So they have to be easy, um, they have to be optional. So again, the idea is you can change that choice and they also have to lead to a positive outcome. So there's all these research about why, you know, um, contributing to your 401k is good for your kind of long-term financial outlook. Uh, and so, you know, I love this idea of nudges. I think it's something really uh, exciting and that technology is sort of going into a place where these can be um, applied a lot easier and more effectively. And so I said, okay, why don't we nudge people in the beginning of the day to set SMART goals? And so we had a control group and an experimental group um, of individuals that we recruited online across a whole bunch of different um, types of work. Uh, for the experimental group, we sent them a text in the morning essentially, so that was the nudge. We said, here are what SMART goals are. So SMART goals are specific, measurable, achievable, 
relevant and time oriented. And we gave them an example. Um, so we said, this is what they mean. And here's an example of what a SMART goal is. Set three SMART goals for today. And, you know, throughout the day, we would ping them and ask them to um, fill out basically 30 second measures of, you know, what state that they were in. Um, and at the end of the day, we would also say like, how did you perform today? And had them do a self-reported performance and engagement measures. And we did that for a week. Um, and at the end of the week, uh, we found out, um, you know, we, we analyzed the data and we saw that people who did those SMART goals, who set those SMART goals, um, they felt flow more frequently. Again, we, we that, you know, really helped them to, to focus on the things that they needed to accomplish during the day. And that flow led to less stress throughout the day and throughout the week. And people were more engaged and felt that they performed better than the control group. So uh, those were some really exciting findings and really easily implementable, right? You can actually, and the, the sort of, um, genesis of this idea was that I did this to myself. I, I set reminders for myself in the morning to set these goals and then to, uh, you know, execute on those goals throughout the day. So you can implement this right now for yourself. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully that will help you to get more flow throughout the day and the week. Incredible, Jared. So it's one nudge is setting smart goals in the morning. What other nudges have you found helpful with clients or any uh, interesting novel ones that kind of catch your memory that you'd like to share of different approaches to use nudges or? Yeah, so we're still working on, you know, different ones right now. Um, you know, one, one nudge is just uh, when you're thinking about, you know, email campaigns to try to get people to fill out surveys, uh, you know, using some of the um, sort of behavioral economics or behavioral science, um, uh, like theory or whatever, to get people to want to um, participate more, like telling people that others have contributed to so this, this idea of social norm. Um, you know, telling people, you know, not to miss their chance at, at contributing and you know, letting them know how much their, um, you know, their ideas mean to you, right? So some, some of that um, can help to help get people to do what you want them to do and also um, to lead to more positive outcomes for them. Um, it's like know, some, some it, sorry to cut you off the Jared. Jared, I was just curious. Yeah, no. uh, as, a, as like a manager or leader for a team, is there a way that some, uh, you know, they can share a nudge, like a helpful reminder in a way that uh, will be best received? Do you have any kind of insight on, around that or? Yeah, um, I mean, so there's lots of different um, kind of, uh, let's say strategies for that, right? And, and some of them are what I was just talking about, right? So letting people know like, hey, everybody else has done this, like you should try, you, you know, you should be contributing to the group kind of a thing. That's really effective. People want to um, help contribute to the team to be part of the group, right? So that's this idea of social norms. Um, what, what organizations are doing too are actually nudging managers to, um, to do certain leadership behaviors themselves, um, which helps the team. So an example is to, you know, before a meeting, nudging a manager to say, hey, you're about to have this meeting. Um, make sure that you leave some time at the end of the meeting for 
your, um, your team to give feedback or to ask questions, right? So small nudges that essentially uh, bring kind of these, these ideas to the forefront that managers might not be thinking about um, so that they do these little behaviors that actually can make a big difference, especially over time. You, you mentioned in your conclusion just the, the high cost of a lack of work engagement in the U.S. economy as a result mm -hmm. of kind of uh, mental health challenges, burnout, uh, perhaps even a, a lack of flow in, in, the, uh, in the workplace. Uh, mm -hmm. What's been the impact of, of using nudges? Like, you know, if you were to think about, you know, infusing the workforce with nudges and increasing flow as a result. Any kind of estimates uh, of, you know, how that might improve economic numbers for the U.S. or, or elsewhere? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I've done very little as far as, you know, making an impact uh, nationally, let's say, right, or even more broadly. But I think that, uh, and, and also nudges can be, they're, they're very variable in like how effective they are. You have to be done well and you have to make sure that you're implementing them responsibly and, and measuring their effectiveness and tweaking them so that they become better over time too. But I really do think that um, they can have a major impact. I don't know how to quantify like what those numbers would, would be um, right now, but um, mm -hmm. I think about using nudges to push out thought leadership, to push out, you know, best practices, to help um, drive more inclusive workplaces, right, to help uh, drive more um, psychological safety, right, to, to have people, you know, who, for example, like if you're more of an introvert, right, and uh, you get a nudge to speak up during a meeting, right, where you might be, um, you know, not that might not be your natural state, but if, you know, you are an introvert and you have a, a lot of great ideas, if you get a little nudge that just reminds you, hey, like, say, you know, speak up, or if, if a manager gets a nudge to, to ask specific people questions so that, you know, it kind of draws them into the conversation, I think that they can have major impacts in, uh, a, you know, a lot of different ways across tons of different types of work and um, types of behaviors, really. I love the practicality of, of, a, of a nudge. I also like, just love the word nudge. It, it feels nice. And <laughs> Me too. Uh, Me too. Yeah, go right to Chick Set Me High is, you know, uh, work around flow and, and, and first describing flow as kind of a set, sense of order and consciousness and the importance mm -hmm. of bringing intentionality to order mm -hmm. that thing of how we're interpreting our life or, you know, the, the context we're in, uh, just seems like, yeah, it's a really incredibly um, simple yet powerful approach to ordering consciousness with these nudges, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think with the amount of data and data sources that we now have access to, these nudges can uh, kind of connect the dots across different, you know, data systems and passive and active data, right? Uh, even like bio data and other kinds of things to help, you know, people recognize these things and to bring um, patterns to the forefront, you know, and help people be more intentional about what they're doing um, in a way that just like wasn't possible before. So I think it's really, really exciting 
And, um, you know, th there's potential for these nudges to also reduce the amount of like, um, like thinking that people have to do or like unnecessary thinking that people have to do and just say like, hey, just remember, like, here's a reminder kind of to, to do this or focus on this in the next hour. Um, you know, I'm even thinking about, uh, we talk about uh, at FRC, like chunking um, our time and like even the idea of like not answering email during a certain, you know, during a, a certain chunk of time, but then be making sure to look at it at, at the appropriate time, right? A nudge could help to facilitate that and say, hey, like, you know, sometimes when we're in flow, we lose track of time, right? That's one of the great things about it, but that could be a detriment. We're talking about the ups and downs, right? If you need to switch tasks, a nudge could be a good way of getting you to, you know, switch tasks at the right time without having to worry about losing that track of time. Like you have something that sort of give some sort of training wheels to get you there. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential for these types of systems in the future. It's amazing, uh, you know, Jared, it, uh, to, I'm excited to see how you integrate nudges into, you know, a whole wide range of workplaces, but also, you know, different contexts and environments, how this is, again, just could make it a massive impact. So I'm looking at you as the world leader here in nudges and uh, excited to see the different impacts that you're going to make from this uh, simple, but obviously but a profound technique that gives you the opportunity to understand people's context, right? And really learn how to reinforce those kind of behaviors and, and attitudes. So right on Jared, it's uh, well done on that study. I really enjoyed it. So let's go to your last Thank one you. before just some final questions here. So you, you mentioned, sure. so you have the study called mindful multitasking, uh, disentangling the effect of polychronicity at on work, <laughs> conflict and life satisfaction so you know i typically when we hear multitasking almost jump right away to oh this is a negative behavior to be engaged in but you actually shared mm -hmm. maybe some counter approach if mindfulness was applied to multitasking so tell us a little bit about that study and uh, yeah some big takeaways yeah so this is uh this is my first study actually i was involved with and um, this actually was, uh, I, I co-authored this with, uh, with Scott Dust and uh, another, another colleague of ours um, who, I who I mentioned earlier, Scott was the one who actually inspired me to, to get into flow research with his article. Um, and so this study basically looked at the role of what they call polychronicity. This is kind of a fancy term for the idea that people um, prefer to do or think about multiple tasks at a time rather than focusing at, on one at a time. And so what we found basically was without mindfulness, if you're not a mindful person, or if you don't kind of have a mindful practice, then um, being a, a polychronic person, someone who multitasks or who prefer has a preference for multitasking leads to an imbalance uh, or like what they call um, work-life conflict. So this is the idea that uh, if you have problems at work, then those problems kind of spill uh, into your your kind of outside of work life, right? So if you have a bad day at work, then you're kind of a jerk 
when you go home and that causes issues at home. Or if you have problems at home, then you, you know, kind of come into work the next day and those problems can spill in, into the workplace. Uh, and so what the, the study basically found was like, barring mindfulness, people who multitask tend to have more of that work-life conflict and they're also less satisfied with their lives in general. And so that's obviously not a great thing. And it makes people think that, you know, multitasking is, is really bad, which there's a good amount of evidence for, right? But then we said, okay, well, what about people who are more mindful? And actually the, the study found that people who are more mindful and who are also polychronic end up having less of that work-life conflict and they also experience more life satisfaction. So the idea is basically that by being mindful, you're actually able to separate those lives a little bit and those issues a little bit. You feel a little bit happier with your, with your life in general. Um, and so it kind of flips that relationship, uh, which is really interesting and, and sort of um, surprising, right? I mean, you, you wouldn't really think that. Um, and it, it just, I think, the, the kind of underlying thing here is that mindfulness does help you to just separate yourself a little bit, like to, to decouple those things like we kind of touched upon a little bit earlier and to uh, keep, again, like, you know, uh, church and state a little bit separated and realize like, just because I had a bad day at work or just because I had a bad day at home doesn't mean that I have to, um, you know, let that spill over and, um, you know, I'm able to handle kind of multiple uh, tasks or multiple ideas um, in a more uh, healthy way, I guess, because of the ability or uh, I don't know if I would draw like too, too strong of a, a connection here just with one study, but, you know, there's support for the idea that mindfulness helps us to manage multiple tasks at once and to um, you know, separate our, our different, you know, domains of life from each other. I think that's the a big part that just really stands out for me is, you know, working with a lot of, you know, our clients at FRC and elsewhere, just the ability to, as we call, uh, live like a lion, right? To be fully mm -hmm. on, time to be fully on, and then to really shift. And I'm going to take a little bit of a detour, hopefully it all connects here. Now, one of the things that I've really been thinking a lot about is how flow is a goal-oriented state and how appropriate mm -hmm. it is to be goal-oriented and in flow, let's say, when you're in the workplace. But then mm -hmm. when you return home and maybe you have young children, uh, still being in that goal-oriented state might not, um, you know, might not be as beneficial because mm -hmm. you're, you're not able to achieve those goals to the same degree or, you know, all the chaos that we arrive at when we come home and how really shifting to that kind of mindful state, that being state is, yeah, just maybe often so much more appropriate. And so I'm not sure if, the, you know, this study spoke about that a little bit more in, in that kind of decoupling, that context shifting that I think just so many of our listeners um, are learning to, to master, right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with everything that you just said. I also think even within the workplace, like within the same day, right, being able to take that break and be a little bit uh, more mindful and, and help to reduce that stress for yourself and recharge a little bit 
in the moment, if you take, you know, 15, a 15, 20, 30 minute break, and, and that helps you to recharge and, you know, get back to that, to that uh, flow state in, in the, the right context. And at home too, I think, um, you know, being in flow, sometimes getting your chores done, making sure that the kids, you know, are doing the things that they need to do to uh, get ready for school or to, you know, whatever, um, yes. you know, again, it's, 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 it's being able to uh, develop the skill sets, the, the, the competencies to switch between these, understand them and um, use them uh, appropriately. Yeah, right on. Uh, Jared, this is so much fun. So just a few more questions then. So, you know, I know you do a lot of consulting internally within organizations and, and also externally as a, as a coach and, and whatnot. Uh, any other general insights or stories you'd like to share of just, you know, the, the joy you get out of being a coach and consultant? I think it's quite a fun experience to to be mindful, to also find flow. So yeah, any other general kind of stories or uh, yeah, general kind of thoughts on you know the work that you get to do and, and what it means to you yeah absolutely and thank you for kind of giving me the opportunity to, to talk about those those different things so um as an in industrial organizational psychologist um we really try to um evangelize this idea of being a research practitioner right so using the research using the academic literature to inform practice. And it's often a really difficult thing to do because each, both research and practice are difficult skill sets that take time to develop. And I feel really grateful that I'm able to conduct flow research to, to really dig into the theory behind um, these different concepts and understand them at that theoretical level, but then also to try to apply them practice. And so uh, with my research, I'm able to, um, again, dig into, you know, the different readings, understand like what the, the researchers before me have done. But then with the, the coaching and consulting, I really get to see it in practice and see the difference that um, it can make in people's lives, um, especially with the one-on-one -on -one coaching, right? And so um, I have definitely seen clients um, come in, they feel stressed, they feel disorganized, you know, they feel, um, you know, sometimes they feel lost. They don't know what they, what they want at this stage of their careers or their lives in general. And to be able to use the, um, the competencies, the different kind of skills that uh, we, you know, we learn or, and we teach at, at FRC and to, to walk people through some of the different exercises that we do um, and see week by week how those things really make a difference. It's really powerful and exciting um, to kind of bring it to that one-on-one -on -one level and see it at an individual level, like how it actually helps. So I've seen people, you know, get major promotions, feel so much less stress over the course of their time, you know, with us. Uh, and that's so exciting to see um, and um, really empowering for me to keep going and to keep doing this research and also the practice, um, but also just rewarding to be able to make that difference in, in people's lives. So um, 
yeah, I just feel, I feel grateful for, for that opportunity and um, to um, be able to live that research practitioner lifestyle that, that we strive for um, is really, um, really great. Right on. So you're obviously a leader in, you know, delivering evidence-based flow uh, interventions to your clients. I'm wondering, what are the questions that maybe we still don't have answers yet in regards to flow research? Yeah, so I think um, one of the, there's a couple of really exciting areas that I'm interested in. One is obviously continuing to, to like develop empirically based interventions. There's really not that many that have actually been tested. Um, so that's exciting. There's a bunch out there that I won't kind of give away, uh, you know, right now, but, but that um, there's still some low hanging fruit there for some studies that could be done to say like, does this actually work to help foster flow or not? Um, I also think there's a lot of work to be done in the team space. So uh, like group flow and team flow are areas that are really understudied um, because they're, they're hard to study. Like what the question of like, what is group flow or what is team flow? Like if I'm in, if we're a group of 10 people um, you know, is group flow just the idea that like all 10 of us are in flow together? What's that threshold? Is it two of us out of 10 people, three, five, seven, all 10? You know, what, what constitutes that group flow? Is it just each of us individually being in flow or is there a higher order sort of like group synthesis, like synthesize, like as a musician, like, being in flow with my bandmates is something that I've experienced so much. And like, it's a different thing than being, um, that I've experienced too uh, in startups where like I'm doing one task, somebody else is doing another task and we're, we're all in flow at the same time, but not together, if that makes sense. So it's like less interdependent. Um, so I think that's like a, a theory and practice area that is very understudied and sort of, um, uh, related but a little bit different is the idea of flow contagion so there's this idea of emotional contagion where like if i come into work and i'm really depressed or just having a hard day and just like acting like oh, i'm like i don't feel like being here today then my emotions will actually be contagious and the people around me will feel that as well and like the whole group kind of suffers because of that or the opposite can be true where I come in, I'm really positive, I'm excited to be here. And some people might be feeling less excited and because they see how excited I am, they kind of catch that emotion from me too, right? So that's this idea of emotional contagion. I've read a couple of studies that look at uh, flow contagion. So this is the idea, I remember there's one, I forget, um, I forget who the author was, but they looked at um, actually teachers and in the classroom. And the idea, if I'm remembering the findings correctly, was that when a teacher who's teaching a class is in flow while teaching, their students are more likely to also be in flow. So there's this idea that basically flow can be contagious and that if you witness people in flow or you're um, experiencing flow with somebody else, then like you're also more likely to feel that um, so that I think ties into this idea of group flow and, and team flow, but I think that's an exciting area that's like really understudied that could be really powerful to, to look into as well. 
I, I absolutely that I find that so fascinating. And I think maybe you're promoting people to come to see your live performances here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Come to New York. Hopefully I'll be performing again soon. Absolutely. <laughs> so who else would be those kind of exemplars of flow, right? So if we wanted to surround ourselves with you know, with flow to maybe catch it, so to speak here. Um, I often think about going to kind of art galleries or museums, live shows, sporting events. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, wh where else would you want to kind of put yourself in to, to catch that flow? And yeah, other ways or any ideas about how to kind of bring that into the workplace in some ways, you know, how to promote that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think finding mentors, right? Or people who you see are doing good, you know, great work and maybe you you can see are passionate about their work and, and really um, put their whole selves in, into it. I think that um, it's likely that those people are are in flow more, right? That they, they are putting their whole selves into, into the moment, into their work um, and, and being part of that, right? Trying to have mentors that do that um, I think it could be really powerful. I mean, it's just interesting because the, this idea of like mentorship and finding people, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of positive things to be associated with people like that, that has nothing to do with flow, but it's just because probably that hasn't been explored as much and actually has a lot to do with flow, right? That, that, uh, um, you know, surrounding yourself with positive people who have skills that you that you want to learn, right? They probably help to um, sort of provide scaffolding. If we think about um, like the zone of proximal development and some of that like developmental psychology stuff, um, mentors help you to build your skills and to get yourself in a place where that challenge skill balance is again a little bit more um in in balance um for for yourself so i think that's that's probably a big one just finding mentors right um yeah. and yeah. and yeah i I, I'll, I kind of similarly i think um and similar idea to flow contagion is like spillover right so if you find flow in extreme sports or skiing or um you know in going to performances like does that lead to more flow at, at work as well and maybe just the experience of uh feeling flow more often helps you to get into it more on demand and, and in other areas too um so just try to get into it as much as you can in as many different areas as you can um, while also maintaining that balance that we've kind of been talking about this whole time with being more mindful and making sure to give yourself time to uh, recharge as well. I, I love the, you know, you describe those high flow individuals as individ people who put the whole self into what they do. And I don't know <laughs> what exactly it is about that, but when I heard you say that, it really kind of lights me up. It, it really lands mm -hmm. as as truth i think you know flows correlation to uh full self-expression is a really you know beautiful way to describe some of its its benefits so yeah i, just, I really appreciate you, you mentioning that um maybe you know tell us a little bit more about why flow in the workplace and you know is kind of a maybe one of our final questions here what would your encouragement be to ceos to those running startups managers individuals who are wanting to consult or support others um in workplace why why flow is something for them to consider so i think 
flow is simple, like flow itself is actually pretty complex, right? Explaining it, understanding what it is as like a phenomena is, is pretty complex, but it's also simple in that when you talk about it to people, they can identify times when they feel it, right? There's sort of, it's like a feeling that might be hard to describe, but once you do to somebody, they're like, oh, I know exactly what that is. I know when I felt it and it feels great, right? Um, so I think, you know, as far as the workplace is concerned, there's just a lot of evidence at this point for positive outcomes associated with the workplace that are really important for work in general. So, you know, go back to my study and others that show, you know, the reduction in stress and burnout, which is super important in these days, right? Um, the improvement of engagement is really important and, and just performance and creativity, all, all these great things. But what I also like about flow um, is this, the sort of simpleness of the prerequisites, like in theory. So the, the clear goals, the challenge, skill, balance, and feedback are, you know, what we consider the three big prerequisites of flow. And as, you know, uh, an organizational psychologist, like a lot of other theories actually build on these ideas without tying them to flow just because they haven't been explored before. And because of that, I think flow actually, it's like hitting multiple birds with one stone, right? So um, in, my, in my consulting, in my, in my coaching, I try to focus on those three prerequisites. And often if you're not experiencing flow, if you have these sort of, if you're not experiencing even like looking uh, beyond flow, just those outcomes that we're talking about. Like if you have a lot of burnout, if you have a lot of turnover, if you, you know, don't see people performing at their at their best. If you look at clear goals, the challenge skill balance and feedback, um, there's often something going on in one of those three pillars that you can then hone in on and do interventions for. And so this works, you know, again at the individual level. So coaching. You know, we can say, okay, like, do you know what you want to accomplish? Do you have those clear goals, short-term, medium-term, and long-term? Are those goals um, too difficult? Are they too easy, right? That challenge skill balance and helping people to kind of like dial those in. And then like, do you know how you're actually doing on your path to achieving those goals? So that's where that feedback is, right? Building in feedback loops asking for feedback from your boss or whatever. And so that's the individual level. And then at the team level, we can you know, implement those same ideas. So what are the team's goals? Do we know what they are? Do people know how their individual goals feed into the team goals? Are you making sure that people, as a manager, are you making sure that people are not feeling overwhelmed by the amount of tasks or the type of tasks that you're giving them? Are you giving them feedback on how well they're doing towards those goals? Often people have so much ambiguity or they feel overwhelmed because they have too much work or the tasks that they're given don't line up with their skills. And this can drive turnover or this can drive burnout. And then the same idea can be, you know, implemented at the organizational level, right? Do the different teams, the different departments know what their goals are? Do they understand how their goals feed into the organization? Are those goals realistic? Are those goals, you know, 
actually uh, important? And like, do those different departments know whether or not they're on their way to achieving them? And so it's really scalable um, and, and simple, yet you have to dig into each of those pillars in detail and in a very like individualistic way or um, personalized way to be you know, effective in, in coaching or building those systems. Incredible. Jared, well said, you know, the, the practicality, I think what you're really pointing at and the scalability from the individual to the team, to the group or to the whole organization. Um, I hope all those coaches and managers and CEOs are, are really listening in because that's, that's gold there. The, the three kind of principles of flow and, and how you can scale those up. Yeah. Just well, well said, Jared. So anything else uh, that we haven't maybe spoken about that you just love to share with the flow research uh, collective community here. Anything else that is of interest to you or just yeah, a fascinating story or yeah, anything that you thought uh, would be nice to share? I mean, really, I think we've hit on my, my whole life story and all the research that I've been working on. Um, so, you know, I, I continue to find new and interesting questions that are worth asking and exploring. Um, I, I'm really grateful to see the, the progress that our clients really make throughout their time with us. And um, it just validates the, you know, the work that, that we're doing to see, to see that progress. Uh, and I'm grateful to be part of that. Um, and yeah, I would just say that uh, these are learnable or just like, these are skills that you can learn over time if you put the work in and, and sort of, um, commit to being more intentional about, um, you know, about this stuff. And it can really be, um, you know, maybe you're, you're in flow too much, right? And we help to help to like dial that back a little bit and recharge a little bit more and to recognize the, um, the benefits of taking that time to recharge and investing in yourself to get the most out of, um, you know, your potential. Um, and it really can be the opposite end of the spectrum where, you know, we just need to initiate some more goals and have those goals stop on to each other towards your longer term goals. And that leads to all these great outcomes um, that you look back on and say, wow, I can't believe I've accomplished these things. I feel so much better physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I guess I, I would just say, like, I'm grateful to the community for allowing me to be a part of it. And um to to feel free to reach out to me and uh talk more about any of these ideas or concepts i'm obviously very passionate about all of these different topics that we've talked about today and would love to have those conversations you clearly put your whole self into it uh dr drop <laughs> and you uh certainly um yeah, we're lucky to have you as part of this community. So last question here, uh, this research question or genie question uh, we like to ask. So if you could have the answer to any study, what would you want to know? What, what would that study be? Mm. Any study? I, it's a great question. I mean, I think maybe the question of like, how long does it take to develop some of these skills like what is the threshold I think would be a great one because um like especially with mindfulness like I I think it's a learned skill that uh an on-the-spot intervention can be helpful with 
for like reducing stress and, and helping you to concentrate a little bit more. But what I've been finding is it actually is a long-term thing that you have to practice over time for it to be the most effective. So like, what is that threshold for like a mindfulness practice? Let's say, how long does it take to, to practice and with what type of, um, and with what type of practice is the most effective to, to, you know, have the most benefit. Right on. So finally, Jared, uh, best ways for people to contact you, uh, stay connected, see when your shows, but how can people reach out? Yeah, uh, probably the easiest and best way is on LinkedIn. Just search my name, Jared Weintraub, um, or feel free to, to email me, um, jweintraub89 at, at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to reach out. All right, Jared, this was a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot today. And uh, as always, uh, we're lucky to have you as part of the community and uh, looking forward to continuing to do great work together. So thank you, Jared. And uh, we appreciate this. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, Please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.